1: Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Hogging a table at Starbucks, telling a little white lie to get out of an appointment, using a disabled parking permit, though able-bodied or listening regularly to public radio without donating, are some of the ways many of us have breached integrity. If we want to see integrity restored in public life, we must start with ourselves and these harmless habits, says author Stuart Brody. In his new book, The Law of Small Things, Brody reimagines integrity as the habit of keeping promises, an antidote to a culture of permitted promise-breaking, white lies, and other small deceptions. A little bit about our guest today. Stuart Brody is the founder of Integrity Intensive, a consulting firm concentrating on decision-making, leadership training, and the practice of integrity. His 35-year career as a lawyer took him before the Supreme Court. He has held leadership positions in the Democratic Party, held numerous public offices, and advised presidential candidates. His speeches and workshops brought his work to thousands of public officials across the country. We meet uh, here on Common Threads, Stuart Brody, fresh off a plane from India. Hello, Stuart.
2: Good morning, Fred.
1: Uh, And uh, we so appreciate you being here, especially after uh, such a harrowing, yes, that's the word I used before, a harrowing journey from India to, you're in Los Angeles right now, correct?
2: I am, and I just... Realize that I said good morning, and part of the expansiveness of our country is that uh, some of us can be uh, in the morning, and others in the afternoon. Which I, uh, I believe some of your listeners will be when they hear this.
1: This is true. So I want to I want to start by by mentioning you, sir, are a r- rigorous taskmaster. You start out with this test in your book, which is not for the faint of heart, <laughs> because you you really, when we talk about the the the, um, the the title of your book is "The Law of Small Things." and you really are talking about small things in in many cases, small things, things that I would say, the vast majority of people in today's society, wouldn't give a thought to, but you're making a stop and and look at ourselves and say, okay, or ask the question: Is this really the epitome of integrity? And how can we call ourselves, you know, people of our word uh, if we do not act in these particular ways? And I'm curious, how did you come to this to this understanding that the, the very small things in life can be so very important?
2: Well, uh, that's a, certainly a great question to, to start off with, because you, you really wonder, uh, I've wondered, especially during the long process of writing a book, why I undertook the project and people have asked me that as you just did and the answer is fundamentally that I I began at a relatively early point in my career recognizing the small breaches that I was making personally and how easy they became to dismiss and this finally took a toll, like, the, like a tipping point, the proverbial tipping point, where after, you know, 20 or 30 years, I started recognizing that the, the, just the sheer build-up, the volume of small breaches that I made and excused, uh, by perfectly reasonable justifications, I thought, but were are were, were really um, uh, rationalizations. For breaches. And then it occurred to me that the, the uh, this compilation that I personally indulged in of, of small breaches amounted to, to big breaches, and that this was really true of, of almost everybody, uh, and that the whole culture, in fact, was bound up in a kind of uh, aggregate sense of denial uh, about our own Uh, moral failings, but still went uh, along um, relatively uh, unprovoked or unconcerned about small things. So uh, I know we're going to get into it, but that's the overview. So basically, I started paying more attention to my own breaches, which is, of course, what I urge in the book, people start paying attention, but ultimately it's a way to to revive a sense of direction and morality in the country. Uh, And that was my other intent because I was in politics and I saw how degrading it had become precisely because of small things. And then a culture just becomes embedded, our culture, our, our, our noble American experience has become embedded in a moral torpor uh, largely because we have learned how to ignore small things, justify them, pretend they don't exist, and then go on congratulating ourselves, uh, and, and um, yet on a path to destruction. So that's the—I guess—that's a long answer, Fred. I hope that wasn't too no, long. No,
1: no, no. That's—it's—it's it's, it's just fine. Uh, Tell us the story of the one politician you worked for. If if I'm remembering this correctly, you wanted to take a soft turn somewhere, and and he wouldn't let that happen. At the the beginning of the book.
2: Yeah, it, it's an interesting story. You know, it's 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 ironic. It's an ironic story in the sense that the it's a it's a story that occurred early in my career. Uh, that. Was a an exceptional um, teaching lesson, moral lesson, uh, and uh, let me tell a story, and then I'll explain why it's so fascinating. But it's it's an integrity lesson taught me by a Chicago politician, which is sounds almost yeah. like oxymoronic, <laughs> it you know, does. That, right? Yeah, because that's the metaphor for corrupt corruption. Uh, but but it's um, anyway, th- there was a. A politician, a state senator uh, in my town, my hometown, which was just outside of Chicago, Oak Park, for uh, some of your listeners are certainly aware it's not that far from your listening audience. And uh, Oak Park was famous for Frank Lloyd Wright and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and it had quite a a name for itself as an artistic place. This person, his name is Phil, Phil Rock, represented the district, and I got to know him well because I was living there, and he appointed me to uh, a prominent position. This is back in the eighties, so I was quite young. And my understanding of politics was that you pay attention to, and uh, you, li- you not only listen, but you you fulfill the wishes of the of your patron. And uh, so there was a big decision on the board that I was at on, and he. Uh, I went to see him, and uh, I guess the, the point that you would like me to make about this is that I, the bottom line, it's a great story. I mean, I hope people can, can read the book, because and, and, I bring this out in great detail. But uh, it came down to my saying to him, Phil, how do you want me to vote? And he just looked at me uh, aghast and said, I want you to do the right thing. I want you to forget about the consequences on me. He was running for the United States Senate at the time, and had I voted a certain way, uh, the board I was on would have created controversy that would have affected him greatly in his candidacy. And knowing all of that is why I asked him, you know, Phil, how do you want me to vote? And he just said, you go back and you do the right thing. I put you on that board to act in the best interest of the people of Chicago and Northern Illinois, you go back to your office and figure that out. And I was flabbergasted. And I think I what I say in the book is that that happened to me when I was in my early 30s, at the beginning of my political career. And I really never heard that from anyone after that. Like, no one had ever said it to me that bluntly and meant it. And that's not to say... I hasten to add that politicians are by nature corrupt, and this was an exception. I mean, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of hardworking people out there who uh, try to do the same thing. It's just that was what was so striking is that this was at such a high level right in the beginning with a person who had a lot on the line saying, It doesn't matter about me. Your personal responsibility. Responsibility to the public begins with your own discernment of what the right thing to do is, and the consequences are secondary to that, or actually flow from having not only discerned the right thing, but fulfilled it. It's interesting. Uh, And it's a lesson we need to hear.
1: Sure. Especially right now, because there's a significant conversation going on right now about loyalty and where does that where should that loyalty be to an elected official or to the Constitution? And uh, I know that I remember from back in the Watergate days that when uh, some of the Republicans finally turned on Nixon when they realized the dastardly things that he'd done, that Nixon was surprised, like I campaigned for that guy or. I, I put that guy on the court, and it, we're seeing the same thing today. So essentially, you're saying you were in that position, that you were placed in a position, this guy did you a favor, and you were expecting that you were sort of returning a favor, am I right?
2: Yeah, that's correct.
1: Yeah, well, then then it clearly, believe me, as I was reading this, I was thinking how, how very timely uh, it is. Um, I want to get to, I'm not going to go question by question, but there's a few questions here in your IQ quiz, your integrity quotient quiz. There's a few things I'd like to flesh out a little bit uh, so that uh, people can understand just exactly uh, what it is that uh, you're trying to get them to think about. And before I say this, Before I get into the IQ, I do want to remind people that they're listening to WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Stuart Brody. He is the author of The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. Okay, so number three, you say once in a while, not all the time, but sometimes just between friends you find yourself exaggerating events in your life only slightly only occasionally and with no intent to deceive and and you're you're asking the reader of the book to check either this is okay to do this is not a breach of integrity and this is not okay to do this is a breach of integrity and here's here's my concern and, and I, I specifically did not read the part uh, in the book where you address uh, anything like this because I wanted, I wanted to address it without actually finding out what you think about it until, until now. Um, because I fancy myself a bit of a raconteur. I tell stories. And I literally exaggerate a million times a day Stuart, yeah. you're not going yeah. to call me on that right, right there, right? You? You're not going to call me on the fact that I just told you I exaggerate a million times a day, literally.
2: No, I'm not. And, <laughs> uh, in fact, I, I compliment you for uh, admitting that. Uh, so, all right, here's the thing about exaggeration. If you go on a camping trip, Fishing trip, and you come back, and someone asks you the size of the fish you caught. Well, uh, you—if you exaggerate, no one's going to hold you to account on that. And the reason I give it a name, uh, remember, I'm also a college professor uh, as well as a practical guy. I think not that those two are mutually exclusive, but you know, I—I—I've I, called it reasonable expectation The people have a reasonable expectation that you'll tell the truth in a given situation. So if you take the the fish story or the golf score, uh, people don't really have a reasonable expectation that you're going to tell the truth. And, and so, you know, that going in, I played golf with president Clinton while he was president the last year of his presidency. And I, I tell this story actually in the book, And we got to the 18th um, uh, green and there were hundreds of people waiting and uh, maybe, maybe a thousand and and hundreds of photographers. And I heard someone yell out to him, Mr. President, what was your score? And I heard him say um, 83. Now I had just played a round of golf with him and I, uh, I, by the way, I, I'm nowhere near 83 he was closer to it, but I don't think he got an eighty-three. <laughs> but then again, I, uh, I I thought to myself, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's golf. They call it golf because all the other four-letter words were taken, <laughs> and that's actually a joke that I hope your your readers don't <laughs> your, your listeners don't mind. But no. but when he stood before the country and said he didn't have sexual relations with that woman, people did expect the truth, and so it becomes it becomes important to understand what is and what is not a reasonable expectation. People have a reasonable expectation that, uh, the United States military will be honest in its dealings, right? So when the governing rationale is don't ask, don't tell, well, that's, a, a, a time for us to reflect on whether our own country is propagating a strategy of, of, um, of, of lying, uh, of um, misleading and falsehood, because it's encouraging that. Don't ask and don't tell. I now know. that has been subsequently addressed. So, you know, the, the reason why that, this, this distinction of what's reasonable in terms of our expectations or not is that it becomes a guideline for our own actions. So if you tell a white lie, let's say you have an appointment and you get a better offer, which we do, or something we prefer to do, but we've made a commitment, and you've got to call the first person and say, well, I'm canceling, and we tell a white lie, and we kind of justify that. But the question becomes, does the person to whom you tell the lie have a reasonable expectation that you'll tell the truth? And I think the answer is yes. People don't want to be lied to, period. Period. And and the question I ask in the book is, well, if we're so if our culture condones something as small as telling a white lie about canceling a lunch date, well then why should we be surprised when the President of the United States lies? And the answer that many people give is, Well, it's different because it's a big thing. Well, why is it different? How do you draw that line? How do you start defining what's small and, and what's big? And if you don't start practicing on small things, then the problem becomes that you just enter a slippery slope, at the end of which you're telling lies about big things. And that's really the point of the book, to get people to start recognizing their practices. So returning now to Fred Stella, who I admire very much and has done so much for this audience, for our national conversation by the kinds of insights you've brought, the people you've brought on to explore things just like this. So the question I would ask, when you talk about, when you tell the million lies a day, Fred, a million exaggerations, I should say, how many of those are uh, 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 with respect to which people actually expect the truth and you're defeating that expectation or breaching that expectation by exaggeration. Now, I know you don't tell a million, but that's really the question I would leave for your audience. When you, when you exaggerate, whether it's on a resume or uh, on maybe on an insurance bill or a tax, um, you tax returns or in a letter of reference that you're writing for someone, um, this is where it starts getting escalating because you're not just telling a story. Now you're going on the record with with puffing exaggeration. When people receiving it have an expectation
1: of truthfulness. No, you're absolutely so that, correct. That, yeah. And, yeah, and 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 I I, I I would I would not be uh, forgiving to. Uh, Bill Clinton for lying about his golf score. That to and I'm not a golfer, but I come from a golfing family and I I was taught really early on that that honesty is a significant element of the golf game. If you don't have that Well, you let don't me have let
2: golf. me let me mention that because that's really critical. When I say there's no reasonable expectation of someone saying the truth about their golf score, I'm being general in, in my conversation because I want to try to make the distinction between when someone's just exaggerating on a story and everybody recognizes it. And when people are not accepting of the exaggeration, but someone is exaggerating anyway. But I agree with you that honesty, even with regard to sports is, is the training ground, you know, for, Uh, a kind of um, attitude and practice of truthfulness that pervades your whole life. You know, one of the few examples in sports of where uh, people actually uh, um, tell the truth when no one's looking is golf. When, when golfers, the famous Bobby Jones story, when he called a stroke on himself, when nobody else saw it, but the ball moved and he recognized are you familiar with that? I, I'm sure some of your listeners are. Famous, you know, Bobby Jones story where he went to the officials and said, I'm calling this a penalty on myself because I moved the ball. And and it's just fascinating that someone would do that.
1: And, of course, you use the, uh, the example of the tennis game. Uh, what if uh, you were playing and you saw the ref make a wrong call in your favor? Would you... Would you accept that wrong call? and And so, yes, this is to me very important in sports to uh, be as uh, honest and uh, have as much integrity as you possibly can. You know when I was talking about exaggerating, I was talking specifically about storytelling, and I think that that's a different animal. Would you agree? it with, is? Yeah, yeah yeah, I
2: totally agree. and 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 I think, Fred, that the concept uh, that's useful there is reasonable expectation. You know, what is a reasonable expectation? Of course, that's culturally bound. We have to acknowledge that. But the, but as a culture, we do have certain expectations. And the expectation of the storyteller is there may be a little puffing. And it's kind of understood that if you want clarification, uh, then and you really are depending on, on a truthful account, you may take the storyteller aside and say, well, what's really the, the deal here? But, you know, we, we we really make judgments quickly about whether someone's being truthful or not, and we kind of know that if a truthful person generally is making an exaggeration, we understand that, and we just call it puffing, you know, like the fish. The fish is yay big, but, yes. you know, and, and 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 we know that we're probably adding, you know, eight inches to the size of the fish. But the sports thing, I, I, I just want to go back to that for a second, and you, you're really asking very probing questions about that because that really is indicative of the, the law of small things. So if you, in the tennis match, that was, um, I think it was Don Budge, if I've got, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. who just, uh, you know, let the ball go by. And why he did that was because uh, a favorable call was made to him for him. For him and he knew that it was, of the wrong call, and he was benefiting from it. He got the point. The ball was actually in. He got the point. And to even it out, he just let the next serve go right by, and he didn't hit it. That was his way of moral equilibrium. And the question that the, the book asks is whether we would do that in an amateur match, something that we were involved in. But the reason this is an important question, even though it seems like a small thing, is because it's played out on the national scale. You, you know, you probably recall, and uh, being in, in a sports uh, oriented state, and I think this involved the Detroit Tigers, where uh, a pitcher had a no, uh, not a no hitter, but a perfect game. And the, the Cleveland hitter, this is two outs at the bottom of the ninth, one out to go for a perfect game, something that's only happened 23 times. And the, the the hitter the runner uh, arrives at first base he, you know the the ball is already there he's out the umpire blows the call this is before you know the the automatic review the replay and that runner the runner always knows well, certainly when the ball is in front of him like it was in that case whether he's safe or out and he knew he was out but he didn't say anything because no player would unless he's compelled by by the, the raw evidence of a replay, but they didn't have it back then. And so this pitcher, the ump blew the call, and the pitcher was denied immortality. And that's really the the representation, it, it, the, the the symbolic formulation of what goes on in our culture. If you can get away with something, or if the culture is such that It allows you to lie. And I'm accusing that runner of of lying, of breaching integrity by not saying, wait a minute, ump, we're talking about a perfect game here. I was out. I was out. The ball got there before I did. But of course he didn't. No player would. He'd be laughed out of the dugout. But that's the challenge we face. And that's the point I'm trying to make in this book, that the small things evolve into big things, And because we commit small breaches, we don't see how that unfolds, and we're insensitive to it, or the culture condones it. And at the end of the game, literally and figuratively, we're at a point in our culture where there's so much corruption, we blame other people, but don't look to ourselves to really question what's our role in this, and how can we do better?
1: Oh, this is very, very true, uh, Stuart, and we are down to the wire for this uh, edition of Common Threads, but this is a good conversation. love to have you back next week, and we can continue it.
2: I'd love to do it. Thank you for the invitation.
1: You've been listening to Common Threads on WGVU, and I am Fred Stella. My guest today, Stuart Brody. He is the author of The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. Please join us again next week for another episode of Common
0: Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University.
1: Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Stuart Brody. He's the author of The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. A little bit about our guest today. Stuart Brody is the founder of Integrity Intensive, a consulting firm concentrating on decision-making, leadership training, and the practice of integrity. His 35-year career as a lawyer took him before the Supreme Court. He has held leadership positions in the Democratic Party, held numerous public offices, and advised presidential candidates. His speeches and workshops have brought his work to thousands of public officials across the country. We welcome once again to Common Threads, Stuart Brody. Hello, Stuart.
2: Well, Fred, thank you for inviting me back. It's a pleasure to be here. I found the conversation very provocative, and I just want to thank you for the work you've done over many years and thousands of conversations uh, for bringing to the public uh, really pressing issues of our time. So thank you for doing that, and thank you for inviting me.
1: You're more than welcome. And checks in the mail. No.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, here we go. Um,
1: (laughs) That's right. Uh, yeah, I, perfect lead-in.
2: <laughs> perfect lead-in, right? Well, yes. Uh, you'll ask the question if you want if you want more of an answer on that. But I was impressed reading your bio, just as you read mine, to invite me. And uh, and sometimes we lose sight of that. I, I don't. I never really thought of that as a an issue of integrity, but it is. Like people take for granted, uh, let's say that you're on the air you know, once a week and. You have this show, but do people know that you spend a lot of time uh, preparing? That you spend a lot of time on the outside, the leadership with, that you exercise in your association, and the intent of that, which is to uh, promote uh, important conversations and provoke people to uh, to consideration of, of of issues that are critical to our direction as a moral country as a moral force as a spiritually evolving community and you've done that and i so so naturally i i like to know that rather than just getting on the phone with someone and saying yeah okay i'll be on your show i'd like to know and i think that i don't want to make a great point about that but it's called preparation but it's also an opportunity for us to give recognition gratitude and um and, and to, to the people that do important things in our culture, oh, and to I, recognize,
1: that. I, I do,
2: and that is an aspect of integrity.
1: I, I do appreciate that, and that is something I try to cultivate as well—to to really understand the people that I'm dealing with. And and you are correct that that most guests don't do uh, any research on the program that they're about to uh, to be on. And I think part of it is some people they're on book tours. And they just have one right after another, and it's just it's it's a pretty massive uh, labor to, to be out promoting a book or promoting a movie or you know promoting anything. So uh, when when I do talk to people, they have no idea. Like, What's this show again? Who are you? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm I'm very forgiving. I'll I'll, I'll say that. Y- you mentioned you mentioned spirituality uh, just a second ago, and. Last week, we didn't bring up anything overtly about spirituality or religion, even though what we're talking about is so intrinsic to all of the religions around the world. And I'm wondering if you have done any research, uh, either formally or just just your informal observation in life. People who refer to themselves as you know a person of faith or a religious person, a devout person. Have you been able to see that they're any better than anybody else when it comes to uh, integrity and truthfulness?
2: Well, uh, I've got to commend you for uh, you know throwing a a, a fastball. <laughs> um, that's a hard question. I, and I'm not a theologian. And I don't presume to have a comprehensive uh, commentary, really, on, on the virtues of churchgoers. Um, I use churchgoers broadly. I can't really answer the question uh, that, that way, because the way I interpret it is, are people who uh, are religious, religious people, are they any more moral than the rest of us? And I'm not even sure, even if I came up with an answer, how, how valid it would be, because it's just, it's an impossible question. But what I can say, and the only, the only thing I will say, uh, but I think it's an important thing to say, is that integrity is a matter of spiritual devotion. That's essentially a spiritual question, because, and here's the reason, that in a culture, our culture, that allows, in fact, encourages breaches of integrity uh, on a a massive scale and has landed us at a point of such moral degeneration. You have to ask the question, why bother? If I can get away with things, why should I do the right thing? And there are various answers to that. But ultimately, I think the answer is a spiritual one because it it allows an alignment uh, with a fundamental um, uh, connection to yourself, but ultimately a connection with God, however you hold God. Because instead of just getting by in a culture that allows the abuse of, of integrity, you're situating yourself, committing yourself to a life of authenticity, which is the way you resonate with God. And that's why it's so hard, but that's why it's so important. And, you know, we can go on about that, but it took me a while to see this because I kept thinking, well, as a lawyer, you know, in my former life, all that was really important was following the law, obeying the law. And which is another way of saying being compliant, a lot of your listeners work for corporations where compliance is a major focus of their activity. Let's make sure we stay out of trouble. But when you think about a spiritual attitude, it's not about staying out of trouble. It's about engaging in a life of, of personal authenticity, which, as I've said a number of times now in this long answer, is a matter of alignment with uh, with God, uh, with the divine, Uh and allows you a perspective from that vantage point of of, uh, access to something really big, the biggest thing you can have, which is the expansiveness of spiritual identity. And so that's really why I think integrity is important. And just to round out that question, religion is different than spirituality. So religion to me, in in my mind, and, and again, I don't profess to really know this the way a theologian might answer this more insightfully, but to me, religion is a, a, a kind of um, you know combination, compilation of ceremony and rituals and uh, conventions that y- you adhere to or you don't, and you get judged by your peers on whether you're religious to the extent that you that you follow those things. And there are other religions that are less dominated by that mentality, like Hinduism, and I think to some extent Judaism, that f- frees you a little bit more from adherence to, uh, you know, to like a rules-based approach. That's why I like to talk about spirituality, not religion, because it's a broader category and it's more personally centered, and even those religions that are heavily ritualistic uh, I think the adherents to those religions understand that the core of that is your personal identity with God, not necessarily the extent to which you're faithful, to use a word, uh, to, to the rules and the conventions of the religion.
1: Let me ask you about—you uh, mentioned you were, uh, you were a lawyer. If you were giving advice to a young person today who was in law school— how would you address the challenge that many lawyers, maybe all lawyers, face at one point or another, where they are hired not to bring out the truth, but to represent the best interests of their client? Sometimes the best interests of their client are truthful. That is the truth. And sometimes it isn't. What would you recommend to somebody in that situation?
2: I would say don't think about adherence to the law as your primary guidepost in your profession and in the rest of your life. Think about adherence to justice. That no matter what your obligations are as a lawyer, and there are very strict conventions about that, just as there are in religion, uh so um, a connection could be made between the two. In religion, you have these things you have to follow. Same with law. But you never want, in religion or in spirituality, you never want to lose sight of the ultimate goal, which is the, the, the fidelity to the connection with the divine. And in law, you don't want to lose the connection to justice. And uh, believe me, it's something I know something about. And I was driven out of the law by my own recognition that the two are often so unrelated that in the minds of the practitioners that they scarcely even understand what justice is. They stop thinking about that um, when they graduate from law school. And that's what I would say to them. You know, my my own daughter uh, had um, wanted to go to law school after college and, and I had this conversation with her about what her aims were. And I just was listening to myself saying things that were really discouraging her from, from, I was hoping not to do that, but I I was really worried about whether a young person can even apprehend that difference between law and justice uh, but she did, and she she ultimately did wonderful things in her life, and then went back to law school, uh, and is doing wonderful things again. But I think she really understood that distinction. Very proud of her. But I think it's 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 one that lawyers lose sight of. And I tell the story in, in the book about my own first year as a lawyer, which was you know harrowing and uh, we we probably don't have time to go through that, but it was basically a a billing scam. You know, I worked for a prestigious law firm, and they were insisting on hours that there's no way you could do. But all the lawyers were meeting those those quotas, and they had to be cheating. And when that dawned on me, you know, I'm 26 years old at a prestigious law firm in Chicago, and I'm thinking... Is this the way I'm going to spend my life uh, cheating as a lawyer? You know, it's interesting that in this recent scandal with Lori Loughlin, everybody talks about her and Felicity Huffman because they're the famous ones, but the ones where they, you know, where rich people got their kids into school uh, by paying this enormous amounts. They, they, one of the people indicted was uh, the head of one of the biggest law firms in New York City. And they have him on tape saying, I'm not worried about the moral values here. I've thought about that, and I've resolved that. I'm just concerned that if my daughter gets caught, she's finished.
1: Oh, Can my gosh. Can you imagine the
2: head of one of the nation's leading law firms saying that ever?
1: Yeah, that, that is appalling. And, and I, I actually took notice— uh, when all of this stuff started to blow up, I go, yeah, of course they're gonna go uh, uh, they're gonna zero in on Hollywood people because of name recognition. And I thought that that was unfair. I mean, certainly they deserve uh, the the uh, public lashing that they're getting and whatever whatever penalty they're going to pay. Uh, it's just that you know it it makes it look like all of the all of the offenders were actors, and that's clearly not the case. Uh, let me jump in here real quick just to remind people that they're listening to WGVU, and my name is Fred Stella, and I am speaking with Stuart Brody, who is the author of The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. In, in, your, in your life, in, in preparing for this book— we, and and also, of course, in preparing for life, you worked for for uh, candidates. All right, so you worked in law, and you worked with with uh, uh, candidates for public office. How were you able to navigate that? We, we we talked about the your your practice in law, but let's let's move into uh, politics. How were you able to navigate that? Were you not like the, the lone voice crying in the wind when, when um, forces, opposing forces, might be saying, no, we can't be that honest?
2: No, Fred, I wasn't. I, I must tell you, and, and, this is, and I say it in the book, and I, I want your listeners to be really clear about this. I was part of the chorus. We all are part of the chorus saying, let's do what we need to do. I've got a family to support. I've got... uh, I'm just trying to survive. It's only a white lie. You snooze, you lose. You know? um, No harm, no foul. We're we're all part of the problem. And I'm not interested in scolding anybody, and I'm certainly not interested in holding myself out because I just admitted I was part of it. It's true I had an inkling. More than an inkling, I had a, a, a... an irritation my whole life, like a burr I couldn't get out from under the saddle, that something was really wrong. And I decided to think about it and write a book about it. But I'm not special just because I wrote a book. We're all struggling with these issues. But the the, 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 the real issue is not that Lori Loughlin committed this thing that we can point fingers at and give her a public lashing or the head of this law firm, but it's how did they get there? How does someone, you know, represent this uh, really upstanding person on a TV show, and then live a life uh, utterly opposite to that? How did he get to that? She, she's not some monster. She's a human being, who, who, as we all are, falling trap to, to, uh, falling into the trap of committing small things along the way, of failing to discern the importance of our actions, the moral weight of everything we do, every little decision. And that's the only way you can ever approach integrity. You can't wait for the big thing. There's no such thing as a big thing. Like, I'll be ready for the big thing. When it really comes to, and we all say it. I said, when it really comes down to it, I'll do the right thing, but I'll, I'll get by on this. I'll, I'll allow this. And, but the, the problem is no one really has a definition between the small and the big thing. People think they do, but it's an illusion. Cause I've asked audiences hundreds of times, anybody have a distinction and, and people come up with them, but then somebody in the audience will say, no, 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 no. That's, just, that's, that's a big thing. That's not small and vice versa. So the only way to practice getting ready for the big things is practicing on the small things. I have loads of examples of how people in really big situations, like the one Lori Loughlin is in and all those people indicted, when it's so apparent that, that what they're about to embark on is wrong, that they're just not ready because they haven't practiced on small things. And it's like, you know, the, we talked about sports. Can you go in and hit a home run in center field in the Tiger Stadium? The old tiger stadium? No. I mean you practice your whole life. And it's the same thing with discernment of of actions that are uh, that have that, that are consistent with integrity and those that aren't. And 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 so there was no you know, I talk in the book about and last week we discussed that incident I had as a young man with a moral teacher, a, a really great man. But then that lesson, and we all have those, spiritual teachers, you know, mentors, heroes early in our lives, and we learn things. And then the lesson dissipates. So how do you make that a practice? How do you keep that alive? How do you, how do you generate a, a fervor on an ongoing basis in your life about the teachings, the moral teachings that, are, that were once told to you by parents, colleagues, teachers? The wonderful people that show up in our lives. And you have to decide that you are going to do that. And the connection between that will and the experiences, we're lucky enough to have to see the light. We have to decide that we're going to make that a focus in our lives. And that's ultimately what religion is supposed to do. And it gets complicated because religion becomes just adherence to various rules and regulations, rather than the the unfolding of of the spiritual essence of it, which is truthfulness that ties us, aligns us with God. So just to to close that out by reiterating that I lost track of it. I lost the message. I committed these things. I, I don't want to say committed because it sounds like I should go to jail for them but it's just one of the innumerable things we do. And that's why we shouldn't point fingers at other people. And I don't in the book, it's not about whether you're good or bad. It's sometimes you do things that are, are not consistent with integrity. You just miss it. You miss the mark, but maybe by recognizing that, and that's what the book is designed to do. Your aim can be a little bit better next time and you'll hit the mark. And that's what integrity is. It's it. There's no such thing as having integrity. People say that, you know, I have integrity. Okay. I ask audiences every time I speak, is there anybody in this room who does not have integrity? And Nobody raises their hand because we all believe we have it. But it's a complete illusion. No one has integrity. You don't possess that like money in a bank. You know, it's it's not something you just do like a Nike commercial. Integrity is something you either do or you don't in the innumerable decisions that you have in the course of a day, let alone a life. And sometimes you're going to blow it, sometimes you're not. And the whole point is your intention. What's the quality of your intention What is about your own moral life? And that's what integrity is. The the calculation that you make to adhere to certain principles of decision-making that honor integrity rather than shuffle it under the carpet and worry about it later.
1: In the last five minutes that we have, can you explain um, briefly the illusion of moral competence? Is, is that does is that connected to what you just said about asking people if they have integrity, that everybody says they have integrity?
2: Thank you. I mean, that's a, that's a great way to tie it uh, together. I, I have categories of illusions i have i set out certain illusions of moral competence and rather than describe those four things let's just talk generally about it that our our sense of our moral capability this is very important you know in my own life and you know as um approaching a point that could be described as old age even though I don't really want to think about it that way. You you start to understand that your sense of personal competence, the competence on on moral issues uh, may not be as um, sacrosanct uh, as, as as solid as you think. I mean, that's why I wrote the book to to try to bring together my own experience about uh, this moral journey and the mistakes I've made. And I think the mistake that we make is that we we have an inherent competence the idea that we have integrity so if you go around saying i have integrity well your disposition is that you're going to be competent to to make decisions that that anything you do since you have integrity anything you do will probably have integrity can you imagine the trap of that so that when self-interest creeps into it to your decision making, you said, "Well, I have integrity." So, so that's part of the illusion. Another illusion is that we have intuition about the right thing. It's really important to look at that: what intuition is, because uh, on the on the cusp of neuroscientific adv- advances, where we are in our in our scientific uh, odyssey here, you know, I- intuition. I- 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 you know, I don't want to get into a big thing about this because everybody thinks they have intuition, just like they think they have integrity. But intuition is not something you have as this, this supernatural thing that shows up. It's essentially an experience base. You're making decisions based on experience that show up as the decision. But you don't want to be saying, I have intuition about things, where, because it's more accurate to say, I have experience. That leads me to an understanding about this, and I can identify what that is and use it in my decision making. Because if you if you jump to an intuitive response, chances are self interest will be in there somewhere.
1: I, I would say emotions, this. Yeah, uh, yeah. Very briefly, because we ahead, we Frank. do have to uh, wrap up. But I would say uh, it's fascinating to see that in Judaism. Uh, the the tradition of going to the rabbi and having the rabbi just uh, scour the Bible and the Talmud for the right answer to a moral question is something that has is, is been always been impressive to me. And I, I think that that's kind of where you're going in that you, you can't necessarily rely on yourself. You, you you might have to go to another source, to a greater source to find the right answer to that question as opposed to saying, let me wing it.
2: Yeah, well, that's, that's right. I, you know, I have a friend who's a high-ranking executive, um, very close friend, and he uh, works in Chicago. He's an investment banker, and, and I once asked him, how do, you, how do you make sure that your staff reaches the right moral decision? And he said, I bring as many people into the room as possible in the hope that at least one person in that group will have the courage to point out where the rest of us are going wrong. And I just thought that was
1: fascinating. That is. is. And on that note, we have to end, Stuart, but this has been a, a great conversation today, and I want to thank you so much for your time.
2: Well, it flew by, and I thank you, Fred, for your work and for inviting me to your show.
1: You've been listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Stuart Brody, the author of The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. Please join us again next week for Common Threads
0: on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.